In our introduction last week, I put up some reasons why we're studying the series of hospitality. And just to refresh your recollection, I made these points that, for the most part, Americans don't understand hospitality. As a church, we've lost the practice. We actually end up substituting programs and institutions instead of hospitality. We hide behind programs and institutions. It's a much better and a much easier way to do it in our minds. Meanwhile, hospitality remains central to the Christian life, and it's also the manner in which the gospel was originally communicated. Tonight I'm going to actually talk about that last point a little bit more, because I've just put it up there and no one's challenged it yet, but I want to kind of show that the gospel was really communicated in large part through hospitality. Last week I also asked why should Exodus study hospitality, and I put up three points that really directly relate to us in a personal way, and I talked about the fact that I thought modeling hospitality hasn't really been enough. And that we've been building community, or a more appropriate way is say we've been trying to build community uh, and valuing something without actually building hospitality into it. So it stops at a certain point. It does turn into a program. We, can't, we can only go so far without actually understanding and practicing hospitality. And I want to point out in this series that we want to turn our focus outward, but I feel like we need to do some work inward as well. And finally, the most important reason is a subject like hospitality lays bare the condition of our heart. We struggle with certain issues, and it really kind of pinpoints those issues for us as we talk about hospitality. So those are the reasons we put up last week. As we were ending, we were kind of starting to look for a definition of hospitality. So let's just go there, and I'm going to do a couple things tonight. I'm going to give us an official definition, and then I'm going to read some scriptures. In fact, we have a lot of scripture to read tonight. I don't know how many we're going to get through. And that's okay. If we don't get through them all, we run out of time, we'll just save some until next week. So let me first just start by defining hospitality. Our word for hospitality that we use in the Greek comes actually from two parts. And I started to hint at this last week. So we have these two parts. One part, philio, that means love. And the other, the xenia, genia, that means to strangers. So if you put it together in some way you get the idea that the words that we translate for hospitality actually has a literal meaning of fusing these two words together, which means love to strangers or love of strangers. And so the whole time we talk about hospitality, what I want you to check me on is that we not focus too much on our inward practice of hospitality within a community. We've got to turn it outward. But as I said last week, and as I've already hinted today, we have a little bit of work to do inwardly just to understand hospitality, how to practice it. And I said last week, if you can't practice it with friends, it's near impossible to try to practice it with strangers. So we are looking to turn it outward. That's the technical definition. Let me show you some examples. I'm going to kind of do some backing up a little bit and maybe talk about it historically. Why is hospitality so important? A better way to say is, why did the biblical writers seem to talk so much about it, or why was it placed in so many stories? And the actual answer is because it was just important in the ancient Near East in all contexts. I put up here, for example, that there isn't a place where you could go looking for food or lodging. It just wasn't available. If you were going to travel any distance away from the comfort of your home, and I mean comfort not like you lived comfortably, just that you were outside of the comfort zone where you had to go seek any kind of shelter or food, you were at the mercy of somebody else. There was also no way for news and information to travel. They didn't have a post office. They didn't really have an organized way of getting information out. And so there's this partnership that's formed. 
where the host is the one that's obligated, obligated, duty-bound, but with pleasure to provide food, shelter, and protection to the traveler, to the stranger. And at the same time, the stranger, the guest, provided news, information, stories about the outside world. There was kind of some partnership that was formed, and that began the basis of how this relationship was understood. It was mutually beneficial to both parties, and it was important to both parties for their own protection and survival. You might think, well, the host could just not know information, but think about a world where you're cut off from everything and you know nothing about the outside world. It's very important that you rely on these guests to do that for you, and it was very much appreciated. So hospitality becomes kind of a sacred duty. Here's a quote I like from one of the books that I'm reading, and I promise next week I'm gonna put up all three books, so if you wanna track along, you can and make recommendations about them. I should have done that this week and I didn't. Here's the summary from the book by Michelle Hirschberger. In ancient Near Eastern culture, hospitality was of paramount value and importance. It was more than an oriental custom or simple good manners. It was a sacred duty that everyone was expected to observe. And the line that got me when I read this was, only the depraved would violate this obligation. It was unthinkable to violate the duties of hospitalities, and they were understood. People knew what they were, and it was just unthinkable. You actually defined civilized culture. That's what they considered civilized, and it was actually stated that the barbarians were the one who could not understand and could not practice culture. So this went far beyond just the biblical text. This was actually just the norm in the Near Eastern culture. For example, if you look at Greek mythology, you see these stories of the gods visiting unsuspecting visitors to try to see if they actually practiced hospitality correctly. In Hindu legends, there's all sorts of legends about the gods disguising themselves as beggars to test people in their hospitality. And this isn't limited to other traditions. I know that in like, for example, the Egyptian Coptic church, there are lots of stories about old men walking down the road asking for someone to pick them up and carry them up the hill. And you know, when I hear these stories, I think, is this urban legend, is it tradition? Are these actual stories that happen? But in every case, the same story kind of ends this way. It says that as somebody finally said to the old person, yes, I'll carry you up the hill, they would pick that person up and they would disappear. And it would be Jesus or something, walking on the road to test people. So these ideas about the ways that we express hospitality and the way that it was a sacred obligation to even be tested by the divine seem to have spread around all of the areas we talked about last week, all across the Mediterranean and in these Hindu examples even down into India. This was just the tradition. Tonight I want to start with the Hebrew tradition as well. Last week we touched a little bit on the idea of angels as guests. So let me start there and see what you think of this. The story goes that Abraham was sitting in his tent and he looks out and he sees three men coming his way and he runs out to them and he bows low before them in this story from Genesis 18 and he recognizes one of them and he calls him Lord. Abraham said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. You know, last week we looked at this verse right here 
from Hebrews 13. And the verse said, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And that verse in Hebrews is often considered a reflection on this story that Abraham has. This experience that he has with these three guests. Many commentators actually think that Abraham was actually having a conversation with the pre-incarnate Christ. Or that he was having a conversation with Jehovah by the context, which many people say is one and the same thing in the Old Testament. Whatever you think about what's going on, the point I'm making is, from the very beginning of the Hebrew tradition, we have a story that kind of seems to imply that hospitality is something that goes beyond just what we do in custom. It is a sacred obligation, and as Hebrews points out, we don't know when we might be entertaining angels themselves. Hospitality is kind of paramount, is the next point I want to make. Anyone remember the story of Lot and the two visitors? Anyone remember that story? So here's how this story goes. Those two visitors are the two angels that Abraham encounters. So if we assume that one of them is the Lord and the other two are angels, and whether that's debatable or not, let's just go with the story a little further. It seems that in the next chapter, in chapter 19, these two angels go to visit Lot in Sodom. And they go and they visit him and they have a little bit of trouble there. First, let's talk about how Lot shows hospitality to these two strangers. In Genesis 19, starting there, it says the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way in the early morning. Isn't it interesting that in both stories the same thing is going on? Both Abraham and Lot understand what is expected of anyone traveling in their midst. The first thing is that they're going to grab water, wash their feet, and invite them in to stay. The angels answered, no, we will spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did not go with him and entered his house instead. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So he understood exactly what was supposed to happen in hospitality and he insisted on them coming in. Last week, if you remember the stories that I told you as I was walking through a town in the Middle East, how the man stood up and insisted over and over and over. And even that tradition of insisting is something that is routinely done and practiced even to this day, that you don't take no for an answer, you insist. You continue to press because it's your right to show hospitality and obligation. It's your pleasure to do so. And here he is demonstrating where it goes. Now this is where the story gets a little strange. If you remember the story, the men of Sodom circled the house that night and wanted to bring out the guests to them so they could have sex with them. And this is one of those places where I want to be careful before I put the next verses on the screen. I don't believe that what I'm about to put on the screen is prescriptive. I don't think this is the way we're supposed to practice hospitality. <laughs> I'm putting it up on the screen because it's descriptive of the fact that Lot enjoyed and knew his obligation to hospitality to such a degree that he would go to the outrageous lengths that I'm about to put up. 
So Lot went outside to meet them. Those are the people that are insisting that he send out his guests so they can abuse them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men. Why? For they have come under the protection of my roof. That obligation to provide protection was taken so seriously. Now again, I'm going to repeat. I don't know that we're supposed to go to that length. I don't even know that he was supposed to go to that length. In fact, the story goes on where the angels say, no, that's not what's going to happen. They won't let that happen in any way. They're not agreeing with his offer. And of course, they're not agreeing with what the townspeople want. And they end up blinding the townspeople so they can't even find the door to enter. So this is a little troubling to most of us. We would think that is a little too far. But all I'm using it to point out is it seems that this obligation of hospitality, of this duty, this sacred duty, was taken so seriously that something like this, I don't know, maybe it was shocking to anybody who heard it, but was meant to demonstrate you cannot touch my guests, even if it brings harm to my own house. I'm not prescribing. Let me just say it a third time. Yeah. I, um, it seems odd that even like saying protection under my roof, granted again, you're saying, yeah, this is not necessarily the right action, but it doesn't follow with his logic. Like his daughters theoretically should be under the protection of his roof, but apparently it doesn't apply to them. Like, so I just, I, I'm confused with like why for some reason he values these people over his daughters. Um, and the same reason like, like is it, yeah, is that idea of mentality more so in this case because he feels that these people are angels or does he feel that they're just two totally random people that he because of this idea of hospitality values them more than so there's a couple things in your question let me unwind them the first is are these actually angels or not is something that is subject to debate the reason that it seems so clear that there's something going on that involves the divine is in verse one of chapter 18 it is God who is speaking to Abraham and then all of a sudden in verse 2 you're right in the midst of the story of these strangers that he's bowing in front of and it is not customary for any host to greet people in this way and Lot does the same thing which is kind of leading us to the second question so they clearly recognize these visitors somebody more special than normal not because they're gonna wash their feet not because they're gonna offer hospitality but in the manner in which they greet them and there's this interspersed dialogue in chapters 18 and 19 that either God is above him speaking and there's three people or God is one of the three people. And that is why people are split exactly what it means. Either way, he seems to think that they are special. But that brings us to the second question you raise, which is, is he doing this because he thinks they're special? Is he offering to sacrifice the security of his own daughters because they are so special? It's possible. I thought of it too. And I'm not even going to say I disagree with that point. I will point out that he does refer to them as men in this context. I don't know if he recognizes who they are or not at this point. They're about to announce the destruction of Sodom as they go forward. So maybe he clues in. And things are not exactly chrono chronological the way they're written. So maybe he knows. But I would say that as foreign as it is to our ears, 
it is not uncommon in my experience to think that somebody would put a guest ahead of the welfare of their own house rather than suffer how calamitous it would be to have someone harmed under their protection. But that is completely foreign to us. That's why I said hospitality is paramount. That's why I use that word because that's how it was viewed. I don't know that we would go that far today. I don't know that I would bring somebody into my house today knowing that they're going to harm my daughter. I don't know that that would be wiser that anybody would applaud me if I did it. You probably should put me in jail or something, right? But this story kind of almost highlights that issue. Yes? I think part of the problem is like it's not just I'll bring them into my house even if they harm my household. He wasn't willing to put himself out there. He was like, here, have my daughter. So it's not like I'm willing to bring myself harm to protect you. I'm willing to bring other people harm to protect you. So, I mean, I would see it more as maybe an example of where obligation goes too far or hospitality goes too far. Um, and that's why it can't be prescriptive for us. Exactly. Because if you think about it logically, he is a coward. It, he shows his fear and that he would subject his daughters rather than himself. I mean, if you look at the story, they'd probably prefer him to the daughters anyway, for, given the way the story's going. I mean, they didn't ask to have sex with women. They wanted the two men. He would have said, hey, you could have me, right? But he doesn't say that, right? So I agree on that point, and I agree that it probably does go too far. And I, that's why I'm bringing it up and being very careful to say, I don't think that we should do this, but we should just look and see how deeply this belief was held that even somebody could come to this and that it could be recorded. And that's about the far as I'll go, is that it's just known to us. Jeremy. I mean, the issue here is not, it's not a sexual issue. Uh, I also think we're looking at uh, this, you know, the, the, we're looking at the daughter part from this kind of 21st century perspective. And that's also not a fair criticism either. Um, I don't think that the that also applies to Lot somehow, that we could somehow deduce that somehow he's a coward. I, I mean, th those aren't the issues, and, I, and that's, I don't think that's the reason why the story wasn't told. The, the, this story is told to, to, to highlight this issue of lack of hospitality in, in a truly depraved way, right? That there's this community that violates the very fundamental thing which, which everybody's supposed to do, right? And, and it's actually, I think it's interesting, if, if we had been listening to this story 2,500 years ago, however long ago, we would have picked up on the hospitality part, you know. We wouldn't have picked up on the, his daughters or, or, you know, the sex part. We would have been like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that, you know, that they would be so inhospitable, so. Okay. Corbin, go ahead. I just also want to push back on the idea of Lot, um, like being selfish in a way, or like not giving up himself. I think that would have been unwise because living in such a, like, I guess, wicked city that he lived in. Like, him being himself, like, he is protector of both his daughters and the, um, the guests, and he gave himself, like, who knows what could have happened after that, so. Okay. Let's move forward. Here's another principle we find, that hospitality placed the stranger above the household. We just kind of saw that, in a way, but here's a more positive example. It's the story of Elijah and the widow. And in this case, we're looking specifically at the request of a stranger. How it is that a stranger can even make demands, requests uh, over the household of another. 
So we're looking at the widow of Zarephath, and this is in 1 Kings 17. Let me just read you a little bit of the background. So Elijah, in the time of famine, has been told to go specifically to this widow. And he meets her along the way, and he says, Will you bring me a little water in a jar that I may have a drink? Just pause there for a moment and think of how many stories we have in the scriptures of water in a jar and a drink, and how much that's often the pattern of the opening of conversations that really revolve around hospitality when we look much deeper. As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me please a piece of bread. This is the widow's response. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That sounds like a little like feeling sorry for yourself. Like I'm just gathering some sticks so I can make my bread and just go home and eat it and die. But this was the last amount of food in a land of famine. Her plan was to make the last meal cake and to basically eat it and that was it. I mean, not like literally die at that moment, but that was all they had. So she just gives this, what we might think is a little melodramatic, maybe it's 100% truthful in a time of famine. I'm going to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as, I, as you have said, but first make me a small loaf of bread. <laughs> That's his comment. I heard everything you said. I understand you have no food. Do everything you're going to do. Which I assume is, you know, take the sticks and then make the bread, maybe not the die part. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. I'm sure she's thinking, didn't you just hear me? Like, I just have what's left over for me and my son. And he's saying, yeah, 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 that's great. Just make me a loaf of bread first. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends the rain on the land. And I know we use the story so often to demonstrate the miraculous power of God to provide. And the faith that we might have, that is all true. But look at the hospitality component of the story. Look at the way it's presented that a person would even have the right to say, that's all well and good. I understand you have very little. In fact, you've actually explained to me exactly how much you have. And now I'm going to ask you to give it to me first. And of course, she does go forward and do that. Is it her faith? Is it that that is hospitality? You'd be entitled at that point to go, hey, I don't know you. And I just explained to you that I just have enough for me and my son and not enough, enough for one meal. That's it. This is ours. It's not yours. But hospitality goes to the request of a stranger, again, over and above even the household, which is very foreign to us. Very foreign indeed. To put anyone, let alone somebody we don't know, in a position where they're ahead of us. Here's another related point. Hospitality was often initiated by the stranger. What does that mean? Well, here's an example. I'll just give you the example and I'll talk about how we might look at it. Remember the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus? 
Remember Zacchaeus being the smaller, diminutive person who had to climb the tree? And Jesus looks up to him in Luke 19 and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. You know, when we read the story, we're thinking Zacchaeus must have been excited. He wanted to see Jesus. Jesus was in some parade. Everybody's having a good time. He wants to see Jesus. And how cool would it be if one of your heroes looks up and says, Hey, I want to have lunch at your house. And that's the way the story is taught. But what we miss is, that's a little strange. Isn't Jesus inviting himself over to somebody's house? And that's exactly what he's doing. He's inviting himself to somebody's house. And this is a custom of hospitality where the stranger gets to come and say, I'm coming to dine with you today. You know, some of you know that we let missionaries and different people that we know that are serving around the world come and just stay at our house for a while when they're on break or just to get away. And it always goes like this. The conversation starts like this, like call up. We haven't heard from them in like six months or nine months. They're like, hey, what's going on? You know, like, well, we kind of already know what's going on. Like, you guys are coming to town, apparently, right, from just the beginning of the conversation. And then there's, like, this little careful dance about, like, so, you know, we were thinking we might be in town. And then you start using passive-aggressive words, like, it'd be fun to hang out together. It'd be nice. Like, just say it. Say it. Say what you mean. They go, well, we were just thinking it could be a great way to get together with one another like maybe to, you know, spend some time and break some bread. Like, so you want the room, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what we want, right? This is totally different. And I, I experienced this. Growing up, people would just call on the phone that we didn't even know, and they go, hey, we're coming to town next week, and we're staying with you. And we were excited. Yeah, it was like a rush to get ready, thinking, whoa, what if we had plans? What if we were supposed to be on vacation that week? What's supposed to happen? But this is part of the expectation that you are always available. Because when you lived in a small village or a small town, you had no idea when a stranger would just knock on the door and say, I'm coming to stay with you. And that was meant to be exciting and something to be received very easily. But, but just think about it for a moment. If we actually accepted that hospitality could be initiated by a stranger, who could just say, Andrew, I'm coming to your house tomorrow for dinner, and not have him go like, he would just say, you're welcome. Like, that's it, you're welcome, like, you're welcome to my house, and then he's got to figure out how to prepare dinner by tomorrow night, right? That's how often it works. But if we could do that, it would be less of a freakout for us when we met a stranger or somebody came up to us and they just said, hey, I'd like to come over, or we would just say, let's do it, if we were ready at the drop of a hat to be able to do that. I think we miss that sometimes in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, how he would just say to somebody, I'm coming to eat with you. I said that hospitality was the way that the gospel spread. I'm going to reword it like this. Hospitality indicated acceptance of the gospel. From Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, notice when Jesus sends out the disciples what he says to them. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. 
Remember in this passage, if you back up just a little bit, Jesus has actually instructed the disciples as he sends them out not to take anything with them. They are completely at the mercy of every town they enter. And he's saying to them, like, literally, go in and announce yourself, peace to this house, and see if they respond and allow you to come in. This whole passage is meant to show that even as you go where you receive hospitality, it's very important. That's how you know that they're receiving the message. You'd be even more explicit. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40 to 42, it says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. That's an indication that I have been received because I'm sending you. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So the hospitality is an indicator. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Notice the cup of water here. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Even a cup of water is an expression that means even if they just give you the smallest token of hospitality, if they would just give you that, then that person will not lose their reward. That person understands what it means to be part of the kingdom. And as you know, we've already covered Matthew in so much depth. That little one who is my disciple is going to become the key to understanding Matthew 25. We're kind of driving there to look at it next week. Yes? The stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Is, is that saying sort of like eating and drinking what they give you don't demand more than that because the people who are working there deserve what they've earned? Which I, is, that's how I'm reading it. I'm not sure if that's right. It's the other way around. Whatever they give to you, you're allowed to take because you are the worker who deserves their wages. So in scripture, and you're going to see Paul repeat this about his own ministry, they're citing to the text that says that the worker deserves his wages. He's talking about the disciples. For the idea is whoever brings you the message, the good news, the gospel, whoever ministers to you does deserve to be rewarded for that. So he's actually saying to the disciples, stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, right? Which could be a little, but most often in this context meant that even if they give you whatever they give you, like it's yours, you're okay. You don't need to move from house to house. Just stay with them and don't feel like you're a burden to them because you are a worker. You bring them the good news. You bring them the gospel and you're worth your wages. So I guess all of our examples so far have been, well, we've had angels in the Lord. We've had Jesus, prophet Elijah, um, and disciples, but we haven't had anybody who isn't like a worker of the Lord. So I guess I wonder if we're getting to that or, okay. There's, there's only one that really stands out completely. And the irony of it is it's the one we started talking about last week, which is Matthew 25, which he's saying like, you do it for all these people, but in the end, you're still doing it for Jesus. So I think we'll never get out of that because the ultimate principle of hospitality when we extend it to a Christian context is we are doing it to actual people. But the principle really ultimately becomes that when we do it to them, we're still doing it for the Lord. So if you're looking for a place where there's a direct commandment 
to express hospitality, you can find it in the way that in Exodus and other places is like, do not mistreat the alien in your land, do these kinds of things. So there's, there's those kinds of examples. And we could pull out a lot of places where that type of hospitality is meant to be shown. But as it drives more and more into the New Testament, there is the statements that you must do this for a stranger, but because you don't know if it's an angel. Or you must do this to all these people, but it's because you're doing it ultimately to the Lord himself. Uh, although I'll mention that the passage from Luke last week actually states that don't expect reciprocity. Do it for the poor, the crippled, the maimed, right? And we did talk about that, so that's at least Jesus talking directly. And by the way, Luke has more hospitality passages than any other. And my idea on that is because Luke is writing primarily to a Greek audience. And so they would really clue in. These things would be even more important to them at this period of time. Kind of, kind of all that. Was Luke the one who had the different account of the, the woman who washed his feet of the simple woman? Because I had kind of a question about that. Because they were in the house of Simon the Pharisee as a, uh, who invited them into his house. It is in Luke where it's Simon who is the Pharisee that is he's having dinner with when the woman described as the sinful woman comes in and begins to use her tears to wipe his feet. So do you have a question about that? Well, I guess I just thought maybe, because that was, he kind of, the Pharisee invited him into his home. He kind of addressed in there, Jesus said basically, this woman showed a lot more hospitality than you did. But I guess there's kind of like a half-hearted hospitality in that from the Pharisee. Yeah, Jesus asked a series of, when I walked into your house, did you, questions. He asked three of them, right? Did you offer to wash my feet? Did you offer, you know, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember all three of them right now. I know it's anointing, anointing with oil. Right, anointing with oil, like you didn't anoint my head with oil, you didn't offer to wash my feet. But here's the answer to the question you're asked. My belief is it is a passage about hospitality. But there are a number of commentators, in fact the majority of them, who disagree. They claim that there is no evidence that what Simon didn't do was actually something he was required to do. Their belief is that the woman went over and above, and he was pointing that out. And the main point of that passage is saying, you're saying that I don't know that she's a sinful woman? You know, that's what you're thinking in your heart, that if I were a prophet, I would know that she was sinful, and that I would not have let her touch me? But look what she has done for me is far more than you did for me. So it is about hospitality in that way. But the question always remains, was Simon obligated to have done those things in the first place? And many people have argued pretty strongly that it's not required. So that's why I kind of thought, you know what, there's enough of a debate as to whether that is or is not required that to make a point that like he's actually calling Simon out for things he should have done is probably a little bit of a stretch. In fact, I'll bring it up next week because I plan on using it. Let me go to one more. This is another indication of hospitality being the manner in which we see acceptance of the gospel. This is the story of Peter and Cornelius. If you remember, Cornelius was a centurion who had a vision, and he was somebody who was starting to walk in the way. He was starting, even though he was a Roman centurion, he was starting to actually take on the practices, give to the poor. He was starting to worship the God of the Hebrews. But he was moving in that direction, and he had a vision to go and find Peter, to send men to Joppa to find Simon, who is called Peter. And then Peter has a simultaneous vision. And in that vision... The sheet with all the different food that Peter is not supposed to eat is draped in front of him in the vision. And he starts wrestling with the Lord like, no, Lord, I'm not supposed to eat from those things. And the Lord 
urges him three different times to go ahead and eat from those things, teaching Peter that this is a symbol of the fact that the church is being opened to the Gentiles, that you are actually to go to the centurion's house, that you are going to go and spend time there with Cornelius. So here's how this meeting happens. Between Cornelius, who's had the vision to go and seek out Peter, and Peter, who has now become obedient to the vision that he saw, and he goes to him, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. That last line is the indication that there's been this healing, this unity forming. Peter's resistance to allowing the Gentiles into the church and the Gentiles who are now becoming believers associating together in a common form of hospitality. Peter is staying at the beginning of this verse like, I'm not even supposed to come into your house. And the symbol that the gospel has actually penetrated both Cornelius's and Peter's heart to show the unity of Jew and Gentile alike is that Peter is not only going to enter his house, he's going to stay with them. He's going to stay there as their guest, showing that they've both accepted what this gospel is going to be and how it moves forward. The simplest indication of accepting the gospel comes in Revelation 3.20. When I was small in Sunday school, we had this picture on the wall of Jesus, like knocking at a door. Remember that? And I don't know. I always thought, looked at that picture and I thought, that's like the door of your heart, right? I'm going like to stand there. I'm going to let him into my heart. That's how I'm going to accept Jesus. That picture was in my, in my children's Bible. I mean, that picture was everywhere that I went. But look at it now from the perspective of hospitality. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and save him. It doesn't say that. It says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Even a central passage that gives this image of Christ knocking to enter into our lives is centered around the idea of a person, even maybe a stranger. Knocking on the door, that's the image it's meant to give. Like, I'm knocking. If you open the door and let me in, I will come in and eat with you. Most of us, if we just heard a stranger knocking on the door going, open up, let me in so I can come in and eat with you, would be like, stay outside. I wasn't asking for you to come in and eat with me, but that's the way that Jesus describes it in the same way that hospitality was commonly understood. You may see some more stories next week that do the same thing that describe this kind of hospitality. And I said last week we're driving to this point. We're driving to understanding hospitality from a Christian perspective where we are talking about Matthew 25. We're not there yet. I keep driving towards it and then backing off. But that's where we're going because for the centuries, the fundamental understanding of hospitality from a uniquely Christian perspective was understanding Matthew 25 and what it meant as we did these things for our master and our king. And that's kind of where we're going to leave it there. 
Let me close in prayer and we'll continue with a couple more examples next week. Lord, I ask the blessing upon the reading of your word and the fact that just the simple things that we take from these examples, may they penetrate deep into us and actually be the seeds of transformation that begin to change us. Hospitality is actually foreign to us in a lot of ways. And Lord, to reclaim it takes more than just reading a few verses or understanding some concepts. Lord, it takes a complete breaking and remaking of our heart. It requires us to open our hands completely, not only to you and to each other, but to strangers we've never met. And it requires us to take risks that are, right now, very difficult for us to take, especially in a world that prizes privacy so much, Lord, where we hold on to our possessions so tightly, where we put up walls around us, where we can't even speak to one another openly. Lord, I pray that you break down all of those things that divide and cause us to stand before you with completely open hands. And Lord, be willing not just to give them to you, but to anyone around us. That's going to take a lot of work, Lord, and a lot of demand. We pray that it's your heart that begins to beat inside to make it possible. Pray this in your name. Amen.